Section Four of Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Yuqing in Singapore. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson, Chapter Three, Part One. Is woman suffrage democratic? The writers of the history of woman suffrage. Give the following account of the founding of their association. In July eighteen forty-eight, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Martha O. Wright, and Anne McClintock issued an unsigned call for a convention, which was asked to consider the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women. And in preparation for the meeting, they wrote a declaration of sentiment. Which was adopted by the assembly, they say in describing the writing of this declaration, the reports of the peace, temperance, and anti-slavery conventions were examined, but all alike seemed too tame and pacific for the inauguration of a rebellion such as the world had never before seen. We knew women had wrongs, but how to state them was the difficulty, and this was increased from the fact that. We ourselves were fortunately organized and conditioned. After much delay, one of the circle took up the Declaration of seventeen seventy-six and read it aloud with spirit and emphasis, and it was at once decided to adopt the historic document with some slight changes. Knowing that women must have more to complain of than men under any circumstances possibly could, and seeing their fathers had eighteen grievances. A protracted search was made through statute books, church usages, and the customs of society to find that exact number. In such solemnly puerile fashion did they work out a travesty on one of the most august utterances ever penned. A young man who was present remarked, "Two grievances must be grievous indeed when you are obliged to go to books in order to find them out." He might have added. And they must be false indeed when you have to found most of your charges on dead letter statutes and outgrown usages and customs. The preamble of their declaration reads: When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of men to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied, but one to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes that impel them to such a course. The declaration is as follows: We hold these truths to be self-evident: that all men and women are created equal; that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights; that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness; that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of those who suffer from it to refuse allegiance to it and to insist upon the institution of a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed. Will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly 
All experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they were accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of the women under this government, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to demand the equal station to which they are entitled. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of men toward women, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Then follows a categorical parody of the eighteen grievances, which will be duly considered in this and later chapters. After thirty years of suffrage effort, the leaders say that this instrument contained all that the most radical have ever claimed. The fathers of the revolution say in their preamble, When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's god entitle them, a decent respect to the opinion of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. The mothers of the women's rebellion say, When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of men to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied, but one to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes that impel them to such a cause. The strained and ridiculous attitude produced by ignoring the essential difference between a political movement and a sex movement is visible in every line, and yet that instinct which finds for a new cause its appropriate channel never carried more truly than in this presentment of the ultimate purpose of women's suffrage. The fathers were met to dissolve the relations that bound the land politically to a foreign power and to form a separate and equal nation. The mothers were met to dissolve the relations that bound their sex politically to men and to form a separate and equal sex organization. The fathers proposed to free men, women and children from the yoke of England. The mothers proposed to free women and girls from the yoke of men. It is suggestive to consider the slight changes between the two declarations. The fathers of the revolution begin their protest by saying, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The mothers of the women's rebellion add nothing to the meaning but detract greatly from the force of its expression, when in their parody they say, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These women of all in America 
were the first to belittle themselves by seeming to assume that in a revolutionary document that was promulgated to declare a determination to wrest from tyranny the liberty that was inalienable right for all they and their sex were secluded because the generic term men was employed in relation to another inalienable right which was about to be set forth that of revolution against intolerable tyranny the americans who framed that instrument would have been the last men in the world to assert that women were not equals of men they were not discussing abstract human or sex conditions they met to institute a new government the mothers of the women's rebellion had an inalienable right to meet to institute a new government if they believed as sincerely as did the fathers of the revolution that a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinced a desire to reduce them under absolute despotism life liberty and the pursuit of happiness were their natural and god-given rights if they truly believed that these were trampled upon by government they might be justified in revolting and attempting to form a new government that they did not so believe seems to be proved by their statement that they knew that women had wrongs but how to state them was the difficulty and this was increased from the fact that they themselves were fortunately organized and conditioned the declaration of independence meant war against the ever-growing encouragement of despotism the gauntlet was thrown down at the feet of a king and by his subjects the declaration of sentiments meant war against the whole social order as then constituted the gauntlet was thrown down at the feet of men by those who declared him to be a determined foe they had not the remotest notion of instituting a new government far from it they relied upon the old government to sustain them in making their attempted rebellion a revolution without the backing of the state's defence they had no expectation or hope of enforcing any new enactment they might desire they were gladly consenting to be governed in order to prove that they withheld consent should woman suffrage prevail the foundation principles of democracy would have to be overthrown and a new government instituted in which the power should be delegated and not direct if the nation thus formed was to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station the leaders of the suffrage movement well understood that they claimed no inalienable right to institute a new government and this is again shown in another slight change made by them the first count in the suffrage indictment against all men but especially against those of the american republic reads as follows he has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise the fathers made no claim or suggestion that the suffrage was an inalienable right or a right at all not only is there nothing to intimate that voting was a natural right but from that day to this it has been the theory and the practice of our government to control the suffrage the fact that governments were instituted among men for the purpose of securing inalienable rights proves that in the opinion of the declarers the method of instituting a government was not in itself inalienable governments to secure certain inalienable rights 
are instituted among men, wrote Jefferson, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This was not the first government founded upon consent of the governed. The English government had been so founded, but our fathers now refused their consent. That particular government could no longer exist for them with their consent. In their judgment, it had become destructive of the proper ends of all government, and so they proclaimed that the inalienable right to liberty made it, to use the words of the Declaration, the right, the duty, of those who suffer from it to refuse allegiance to it, and to institute a new government. In the New York Constitutional Convention of 1867, Mr. George William Curtis defended the proposition so to amend the Constitution as to extend the suffrage to women. In the course of his eloquent remarks, he said, the chairman of the committee asked Miss Anthony whether, if suffrage was a natural right, it could be denied to children. Her answer seemed to me perfectly satisfactory. She said simply, all that we asked is an equal and not an arbitrary regulation. If you have the right, we have it. To me, it seems to discredit the logical powers both of Miss Anthony and of Mr. Curtis that one should have made this reply and the other should have rested content with it. That was a pertinent question and it was not answered at all. To say, if you have the right, we have it, is not to tell whether one thinks children should have it. As a matter of fact, an agitation of the rights of minors arose from the discussion of natural right, and also an agitation for minority representation that is continued to this day. Mr. Curtis added, The Honourable Chairman would hardly deny that to regulate the exercise of a right according to obvious reason and experience is one thing, to deny it absolutely and forever is another. To regulate a law is to abolish it, either relatively or absolutely, for some, and to maintain it for others. When the state of New York says that no alien who has not been naturalized shall vote, that no boy under twenty-one shall vote, that no person resident in one town or ward shall vote in another, that no criminal or pauper shall vote, it acts on the natural principle of self-defense, which contravenes the dogma of the natural right of anyone to the suffrage. On that principle, it would be impossible for the Congress to impeach a president, to forbid, as it did, those who had been in rebellion from voting, or to deny the suffrage to a child or to any human being. Government itself becomes impossible. Judge Story, whom suffrage writers claim as favourable to their cause on other grounds, says that the right of voting has always been treated as granted and not a natural right, derived from and regulated by each country according to its ideas of government. Both federal and state courts have decided again and again that there is no such thing as a natural right to suffrage. The consent of the governed certainly meant something very different to our fathers and to our statesmen and to ourselves from what it could mean to any other government on earth. 
Although the phrase itself may have been a euphemism which sprang from Jefferson's sympathy with the mighty rumblings of feeling that preceded the French Revolution, still it was certainly meant that so far as they could make it so, there should be vastly more consenting by popular vote than had been dreamed of in the mother country. But it did not mean that each and every individual in the state must consent to each and every law that governed him. For not only has no government ever been instituted which derived just powers in that way, but none ever will be, for there never can be such unanimity. It did not mean that every individual must consent to be governed somehow by some scheme of government, for its laws were carefully framed so as to compel the external allegiance of those who never consent, the criminal and the anarchist. It did not mean even that consent, in the sense of agreement, was expected from a large body, or a small body, as the case might happen, of those who held views opposed to the policies that were controlling at any given time. It meant just what Jefferson meant in that other dictum of his. The will of the majority is the natural law of every society, and the only sure guardian of the rights of man. Together they interpret each other, and are worthy of our declaration and our bill of rights. The inalienable right to liberty in all mankind forbids the right of anarchy in any of mankind, and the question of woman suffrage, strange as it may appear, actually narrows itself down, as it seems to me, to the question whether we shall have democracy or anarchy. Democratic government is at an end when those who issue decrees are not identical with those who can enforce those decrees. But, after all, the claim to suffrage as a natural right has been practically abandoned by those who first made that claim. The next proposition was that it was a universal right springing from the necessary conditions of organized society, and so should be granted to women as a member of that society. They say in their declaration, he deprived her of the first right of a citizen, the elective franchise. Chief Justice Waite of the United States Supreme Court decided that citizenship carried with it no voting power or right. The same decision has been handed down by many courts in disposing of test cases. It seems to me quite as evident that what is now called universal manhood suffrage does not rest upon any belief by the state that this is the first right of a citizen, because no one doubts that if the time came when a majority deemed that the preservation of the state depended upon disfranchising a number of voters, they would be disfranchised although they remained citizens. The suffrage leaders have, in theory at least, also abandoned the claim to suffrage on the ground of their universal rights as citizens. A proof of this is seen in the fact that at various times they have suggested the extension of suffrage under qualification. Among the latest that I have noticed is an address of Mrs. Stanton's to a suffrage convention held in 1894 in which she proposed the following. Resolved that the women of New York petition the legislature of the state to extend the suffrage to women on an educational qualification. She must therefore believe that the legislature has the legal right to qualify it for men, 
and to withhold it from women is but an extension of the right to qualify suffrage because it only says we do not consider women citizens qualified to be voters writing a year ago mrs stanton said it is the duty of the educated women of this republic to protest against the extension of the suffrage to another man until they themselves are enfranchised thus it would appear that mrs stanton does not believe in universal suffrage a suffrage speaker in new york not long ago said naively we the women when enfranchised will vote to withhold the suffrage from the ignorant she did not explain what would happen if the ignorant voted not to have the suffrage withheld nor did she appear to realize that she was practically admitting that the present voters have the right to withhold the suffrage from those whom they consider unfitted for it but it is not true that american women did not and do not consent to be governed they have always consented loyally and joyfully from the time of the boston tea party down to the civil war and in such times of peace and prosperity as were indicated by the Columbian Exposition, when the government formally asked the assistance of its women citizens, they showed their consent by their deeds. And only the suffrage faction treated the invitation to share in the exposition after the immoral fashion of a discontented element. And the suffragists themselves consent to be governed every time they accept the protection of the law or invoke it against a debtor for they thereby acknowledge its proper application to themselves if the case were reversed the second count in the list of political grievances runs he has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice this was not true for the women who wrote that sentence were free to use their voices in regard to every law they desired to affect and circumstances have proved that they were sure of being heard and if the law were just and for the general good of assisting materially to establish it at the very time when elizabeth cady stanton and lucretia mott were writing that indictment against the united states government dorothea dix was presenting a memorial to the national congress asking for an appropriation of five hundred thousand acres of the public lands to endow hospitals for the indigent insane that bill failed to pass but in eighteen fifty another bill which she presented asking for ten millions of acres passed the house and failed in the senate merely for want of time to consider it four years later a bill making appropriations of the ten million of acres to the separate states passed both houses and president pierce vetoed it because he believed the general government had no constitutional power to make such appropriations she then went to the legislatures of the states with the result that is so well known rhode island pennsylvania new york indiana illinois louisiana and north carolina founded lunatic asylums and the work was begun which is culminating in the separation of the insane from the criminal the women from the men in every town and county of the land the right of petition is not only as open to women as to men but because of the non-partisan character of their claims and suggestions they find quicker hearing miss louise lee schuyler 
has been more successful in securing the enactment of laws for which she presented the need than any one politician in the state of new york before whose legislature they have both pleaded he with a vote which had to contend against other votes she with a voice that spoke the united mind of a body of philanthropic women there was no unjust law which the suffrage association could not have changed during these fifty years had it cared to try and indeed its members make the boast that many of the changes are their own change and improvement of laws was not their aim it was a vote upon changing or not changing laws that they sought for the difference is worldwide end of section four recording by using in singapore